1: Hi, I'm Caprice, and I'm the host of the Unseen podcast. We look
2: at missing person cases, unresolved crimes, and lesser-known stories
3: from
1: around the UK. We delve into cases that do not gain public attention, such as unidentified people and historic cold cases. If you're interested in true crime from the UK, then you might be interested in having a listen to the Unseen You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: This podcast contains adult language and stories of true crime. If you don't like laughing, crying, or being horrified at the actions of other humans, this podcast is not for you.
2: This is Resolve Mysteries. I'm Eliza.
1: I'm Allison. And I'm Carlin. Look at that. That was so fluid. You didn't even practice, you guys. Now You you crushed that. Killing it. Um, This is season two, episode
2: 10 of our show, where we rewatch, recap, and give you the latest updates to cases featured on the show, Unsolved Mysteries. For our January nonprofit, many of you may know, but for every review that we receive for our podcast, um, we donate a dollar to a different nonprofit. And for January, it's Lutheran World Relief. And if you haven't listened to episode nine of season two, we sort of talk a little bit about what they do. Um, So, yeah, we're happy to support them. And thank you so much for supporting us when you leave a review. Yeah. Allison, do you have some patrons you want to shout out? Sure. We'd like
3: to thank Michelle S., Adam T, Sean K, Felicia J, Dimisha M, Heather C, Jay Hobbs, and Emma H. Thanks so much, guys.
2: We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. And if you want to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash Resolve Mysteries podcast and get access to the Forgotten Few series along with our 50 states of the unsolved and our THDI series. Just a quick note too, we've also redesigned our merch store and added a bunch of new designs. You can go to resolvemysteries.com slash merch. We have mugs, totes, goodies. So check it out and that's another way to support us. Uh, Before we get started with this episode, we exchanged Christmas gifts on a normal Day, Christmas Eve, <laughs> but one of the gifts that I bought the girls d- had not shown up yet, and it just came in the mail this week. So I'm gonna have them open it. Yay! On Mike, the pressure's really on. Prezi oh time. no What is it? Uh, it's a cute little prezi. It's just a little prezi. What is it? Oh, oh, honey! Oh, honey it says honey. honey. it go. Yeah. Wait, what? So it says honey in Morse code. Oh! <gasps> <Hi. laughs> Uh, So, yeah, the shop that I got this from, she was so sweet. Um, She's in Italy, I believe. Wow. And um, her name's Sylvia. Her shop is Ananka Studio, A-N-A-N-K-E Studio on Etsy. So go support (laughs) her. She's a sweetie, Sylvia. Nice work, Sylvia. Thank you, Eliza. You're welcome. I love you both very much. We love you, too. (laughs) Okay, so what are we talking about this episode?
3: Um, I have a wanted segment, and it is the story of John Hawkins,
1: and it is Cuckoo Bananas. Ooh, cuckoo Bananas. Mm-hmm. All right, and then we have a frotty, mm. which is about Woody Kelly. Oh, Woody. Oh, Fridays.
2: I've got a treasure. It's also a mm, medium.
1: <laughs> Guys, aren't you excited about this episode? <laughs> yeah,
2: we really wanted to <laughs> pump you up. Uh, Henry Plummer
1: and the Stolen Alder Gulch Gold. Ooh. And then we have A Sweet Little Lost Loves about Jim, Tammy, and Leanne Hamilton. That's a nice story. It is nice. All right, let's do it.
3: So this is a Wanted segment, and it is the story of John Hawkins and also a bunch of other people. So we open with hospital stack. And he tells us, just before 7 a.m. on April 16th, 1988, paramedics responded to a call at the Glendale Medical Office of Richard Boggs. Inside, they found the body of a man lying on the floor of an examination room, and Boggs identified the man as Melvin Eugene Hansen. Kurt Stoutensberger, an investigator and coroner, tells us that Boggs said he received a phone call from his long-term patient, Melvin Eugene Hansen. Boggs said that Hansen had been drinking heavily and was having chest pains, and he wanted to come in and be examined. Boggs said that Hansen had been his patient for seven years and had recently been complaining of heart trouble. Just like, just... Go I to the emergency. I really room.
1: just wouldn't call my family doctor about that.
3: Well, also, like, who, nope. how do you know? Like, wouldn't you be like, I'm having chest pain? Like,
1: who complains of heart trouble? That's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's not a headache. It's not like, by the way, this thing has been really annoying me. <laughs> yeah. This think, heart attack I've been having for three months. <laughs> yeah. It's really starting to get to me. Like,
3: who complains of heart trouble? That doesn't make any sense. Boggs claimed he told Hansen to meet him at his office at 5 a.m. for an EKG and other medical tests. Mm-mm. All of this is such garbage. Like, it'll just be me and you. It'll just be a little (laughs) bonding time. 5 a.m.
1: It'll be cute. He's like,
3: swing by on your way home from the bar. (laughs) Um, So he brought Hansen in and examined him. He told him to lie down in the examination room for a few minutes. Boggs said that when he went into another room to get some stuff done, some doctor stuff, (laughs) while he was waiting for Hansen to rest, he heard a thud. (laughs) Bug said he rushed back in and found Hanson lying unconscious. He claimed he immediately called 911, but it was busy. Yeah, I was like, is
2: that even a thing?
3: It is a thing.
2: It was then, I think. Yeah,
3: it's not anymore.
1: No. Okay.
2: But... It is a thing. Is it very likely? Probably. Not.
1: Exactly. Is it very likely at five a.m.? Exactly. Uh-huh. Um, not so. The right he <laughs> he said
3: that he started calling paramedics at like five thirty in the morning, and that nine one one was busy until seven o four a.m. Oh lord, come on! Because you know that's when everyone is calling nine one one. Yeah. Between everyone. the hours of seven uh, five and seven. It's the busiest a.m. time. The yeah. busiest, most injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so finally, paramedics arrived, and Hansen was pronounced dead at the scene. Stoutzenberger says that it appeared to be a normal death in a doctor's office with a doctor in attendance, a routine death.
2: (gasps) This kills me. (laughs) He says something like, it's the most common way to die with a doctor in... Presence. That is not a case. That's garbage. I mean, maybe in a hospital, but not in a general practitioner's
1: office. No. yeah. No. No way. That has to be highly uncommon. It yes. Is.
2: He's like, it happens all the time. Who it's goes so to routine. see? <laughs> who goes to see their GP and dies? And
3: dies. <laughs> like, think about that. No. Uh, I mean it's not funny. A man died, obviously. Don't write us about but it. I but
2: I laughed, I did laugh when he said that because yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. Come on, man.
3: Um, so when paramedics examine the body in Bog's office, they noticed that Hansen's condition seemed ...seemed inconsistent with Boggs's story. The body's rigor mortis suggested the death had occurred significantly earlier than Boggs was claiming.
2: I love these paramedics. Oh,
3: me too. They're like, you are full of shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're like side-eyeing him from the second they <laughs> get in there. Yeah. Um, the EKG tape revealed that the machine had been last used just after midnight, not at 5 a.m. The paramedics were suspicious, so they called the police, and I love them for it. Yes, mm-hmm. love it so much. Tim Spurl, a police officer, tells us that Boggs ignored basic protocol... A doctor is not going to try to help someone having a heart attack in his office. He's going to call an ambulance for them. Yes. Obviously. James Lowry was suspicious that Boggs said he got a busy signal when he called 911, as 5 to 7 a.m. are not usually busy times for 911. Like, no one commits crimes between 5 and 7. No.
2: <laughs> it's too tired. you
1: sleepy. Please. It's
2: just like those people who are having an affair and dinking at 5 a.m. Oh, I know. come
1: like, on. Nobody dinking. Doing? Nobody getting injuries. Hard pass. No injuries from <laughs> Dinkin. No, no, no. one's no. shooting each other in the streets at 6.30 in the morning. I'm
3: no, sorry. I hope not. We all have jobs. Though three credit cards and a copy of a birth certificate was discovered in Hanson's wallet, no photo ID was found. Boggs gave police the names of Hanson's business partners and emergency contact. His emergency contact was listed as John Hawkins from Columbus, Ohio. Police were reluctant to question Boggs without more evidence, as he had been one of the most respected physicians in Southern California. Like, I'll get into it, but he was a big deal. He had built up an extremely lucrative medical practice. However, by the 1980s, Boggs experienced severe personal and financial troubles. There were rumors that he was financially dangerously overextended and that his practice and medical license were in jeopardy. I guess in certain states, if you're a medical professional and you file for bankruptcy, they suspend your license, which I didn't know because you can't pay. So on April 17th, an autopsy was performed. The pathologist noted that the body appeared to be younger than 46, the date given on the birth certificate. However, they couldn't look into it any further because John Hawkins arrived from Ohio.
1: Wait, and real quick, he had his birth certificate on his person? Yes. He had a million forms of ID except a photo ID. Oh, Lord. Okay. 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 <laughs> Like, I know I take mine with me everywhere.
3: Your birth certificate? Yeah. Oh yeah. I just fill my wallet with my birth certificate, my social security card, anything you would need to steal my identity. Yeah. Full. Yeah. Fucking just keep on. it on you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, Passport. So, oh, yeah, everything. Just I have a giant wallet. Yeah. It's, a, it's
1: a file folder, yeah. and you can mug me it's and then an take on my... an attache case. <laughs> I usually keep also like a blood sample. I keep it around my neck.
3: Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Angelina Jolie style. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> but your own blood. <laughs> yeah. Not Billy really Bob the no. blood? No, yeah. no, no, not my brother's either.
3: <laughs> um, so Hawkins and Hansen co-owned a successful clothing store chain. Hawkins said he had to settle Hansen's affairs quickly so he could go home. And take care of business. John Perkins of the Glendale Police Department tells us Hawkins wanted the body cremated as quickly as possible. He had the ashes scattered the following day. Two months later, the case took on another intriguing turn. On June 9th, a detective received a phone call from an insurance company representative who informed him that they were about to pay a $1 million life insurance policy for the death of Gene Hansen. The beneficiary was John Hawkins of Columbus, Ohio. The insurance rep inquired if the photographs of the body had ever been compared to any known photos of Melvin Hanson, and they hadn't, so the detectives sent away for a California driver's license photo. When the photo arrived, the police realized the guy that died looked nothing like the real Melvin Eugene Hansen. Oh, boy. The insurance company had already paid out the million to John Hawkins, so too bad. Um, Police used fingerprints to match the dead body to to a missing persons report. The body that Boggs had claimed was Hanson was actually the body of a 32-year-old bookkeeper from Los Angeles named Ellis Henry Green. This story... Crazy, I know at this point. I was like, Where did he get that body? It's just insane. Like, I thought that this wouldn't be that deep of a story. Yeah, me
2: too. This happened to me
3: for episode 11 as well, where I was like, This is gonna be super easy, and (sighs) it's bananas. Yeah, my segments are cuckoo bananas coming up. Um, so Boggs continued to insist that Melvin Eugene Hansen was the body of the man in his office. He claimed he was duped by this man. Police obtained a search warrant and took his files. They also discovered that he made frequent phone calls to Hanson's business number and, more suspiciously, to Mm Hanson's business partner, John Hawkins investigators also saw that boggs received numerous phone calls from a wolfgang von snowden
2: good god a totally that name.
3: Wow. not made up name
2: wolfgang
3: wolfgang
2: is it john hawkins who is the one who was like we need to speed up the cremation and spreading of the ashes yeah so yeah. they were
3: like we can't do it in 24 hours so he found the only company in california that could yeah and then he was just like, peace.
2: He's like, I got to have these spread out. Spread them out. Spread them
1: out. Yeah, spread like, them.
3: He's like, I'm a very busy business person. So apparently, Boggs had spoken to Von Snowden the night the body was discovered, and investigators wanted to know why. Snowden's name was given to law enforcement, and several months passed. On January 29th, 1989, at Dallas International Airport, a suspicious acting man was interrogated by customs officials after getting off a flight from Mexico this is too funny this reenactment is funny for a billion reasons and I'm going to list a few when his bag was examined $14,000 of undeclared cash was discovered when they searched his briefcase there is literally a book in it called quote new ID in America written by anonymous (laughs) no (laughs) cannot make this shit Uh up
1: that That was in the reenactment? yes Uh wait I I have a photo
3: of it right 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 look look (laughs) hold on here it is (laughs)
2: Mm-hmm.
3: New ID in America. Oh my god. <laughs> <I'm anonymous>.
2: Wow. <laughs> Is this after he's found the cash, the guy, the security officer?
3: Yeah, no. so he opened he finds the cash and then he opens up the briefcase right. and he finds this book. Um they also find an ID with the name Wolfgang Von Snowden. And Ugh. the original ID of the bookkeeper, Ellis Henry Green. Oh shit. <laughs> This is a a really incredible, like almost perfect crime plan, but the people involved are so bad at it. Yeah. It's like they were intelligent enough to come up with this plan, but too stupid to follow. Yeah, just a hot. Well, they left like the trailiest of trails. (laughs) Yes. They're just a hot fucking mess.
2: Breadcrumb, breadcrumb, breadcrumb. Yes.
3: And by breadcrumb, a book about creating a fake ID, having a fake ID, and then having the ID of a dead man. (laughs) That's Mm. not a breadcrumb. That's like a bread.
1: It's like a fucking loaf. (laughs) It's a a loaf. It's a loaf. It's a real loaf situation. It's a loaf of stupid. Buttered up, ready to serve. (laughs) Slathered in idiocracy.
3: Um so the customs agent checked the database and saw that Von Snowden was wanted by the police. You couldn't go with James Smith. Totally. <laughs> come like on. Too come fancy on. Von Snowden. <laughs> Within <laughs> hours, Wolfgang Von Snowden was identified as Melvin Eugene Hansen. What oh. the hell is going on? <laughs> oh my God. That's when I like, paused and I was like, what the fuck, man?
2: Like, give me a break. Um, so, so, Melvin Eugene Hansen is who they said d- was dead. Yes.
3: Yes. But now it turns out that Wolfgang von Snowden is, is Melvin Eugene yes, Hansen. Yes, yes, yes. And we now know that the dead man's name is Ellis Henry Green yes, yes. because of the photograph. Okay.
1: But right? Where did he come from? I will tell you. <laughs> who did?
2: that. Um, new man, new dead man. Who is <laughs> <laughs> New body. Who is <laughs> People are gonna get mad at us. Oh it. Lord! Oh, yeah. okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
3: <laughs> so I also want to point out in the scene where Melvin is being arrested, there is a man on the customs line in a pink tank top, <laughs> literally holding a boogie board.
2: <laughs> oh my God! How very California! Really? It is amazing.
1: <laughs> this segment is cuckoo banana in Dallas. <laughs> look, look here he is. It's the boogie here boarding capital of the world, don't what? you know?
2: <laughs> look at this guy.
1: Look at this. Look
2: at this. Oh, no. What? What the fuck? He's ready to jump in
1: the ocean. Was
2: it Dulles? The
1: Texas Ocean.
2: Dulles. Maybe he's ready for a plane crash.
1: I thought it was Dulles, and then
3: I looked it up, and it said Dallas. I don't know where Dulles is. That's that D.C. So you would okay, not have a boogie way. board if
1: you were going into D.C. <laughs> also, it's a customs line. Everyone else has bags. And this guy is just like, a tank top and a boogie board. Yeah, baby. he's like fucking
3: Jeff Spicoli. He's just got <laughs> his boogie board and his tank. And that's all he needs.
1: That is <laughs> such a weird choice. Oh, my <laughs> word. What a weird prop choice. I know. You Who am? did the extras? They were like, or? we ran out of extras. Just, like, grab some from the Baywatch set. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs> Okay, oh, No. Okay. so back to
3: the story. Stack asks us if Melvin Eugene Hansen is alive, why had Boggs said he died in his office? Um, Stack tells us that the police began to piece together a conspiracy that had come very close to being the perfect crime, if not for the people involved. Yeah, we're not, <laughs> not for all those dummies. Who are not very close to the perfect crime. Okay, Melvin Hanson and John Hawkins were business partners. They came up with the scheme of murdering Alice Green, switching his identity with Melvin Hanson, and collecting on Hanson's insurance policy. By ordering the remains cremated, there was no body to exhume. Five days after Hanson was caught, Boggs was arrested at his office, and he was charged with insurance fraud in the murder of Alice Green. He looked like he didn't give a shit in that mugshot picture. Oh, my God. He's... He's nuts. trying not to say crazy anymore.
2: So he, he was charged in the murder or with the murder? Right now, he's just been charged with, with in insurance, insurance fraud. fraud. Okay.
3: Ellis Green had a blood alcohol level of 0.29 in his body. They think he was really drunk, lured to the doctor's office, and murdered. Because <sighs> a doctor was involved, they theorized that drugs may have been used to overdose Green or that he was suffocated. Boggs publicly maintained his innocence right up until he was arrested. He said he didn't get anything out of murdering Green and he didn't take off with the money like they did, so why would he have killed them? They then give an update, but I'll get into all of that in a little bit. So there's a lot to unpack in this basket of insanity. One of the things about this case is there are loads of articles about it as the situation is unfolding in real time. So they realized the body was in Hanson in July of 1988. I found an article in the LA Times from September of 1988, and one of the investigators, Don Ogden of the Ohio FBI, is quoted as saying, there's a body in California, no one knows who it is, there is some money that's been paid, but there's no proof it was stolen. All things have to be proven first before we can indict somebody and get a warrant. We'd like to find them, but quite frankly, it's not to the point where we can start a manhunt.
1: Wow. So it
3: it was sort of a perfect crime and how convoluted it yeah. was. Right. Yeah. Like know.
1: we know a very bad thing happened, right. but we can't directly
3: yeah. relate anyone we to it. We don't have anything that we can use as tangible evidence. Damn. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time wondering why Green when I watched mm-hmm. this segment. In some of the accounts I read, he was a drifter. In some, it was a bookkeeper, which is what the show says. I did manage to find out um that he did happen to look like the real hansen okay he was reported missing by his aunt who was he was living with in north hollywood so it isn't like he didn't have family who cared about him
1: right this is very different from like my story with the fire where he like lured? Oh right, the like lured the transient guy who yeah. no one would be looking for. Like yes. this guy this had family
3: difficult. in the next neighborhood. Yeah, obviously she was going to report him missing, even if he was quote a drifter, which I think just means he probably moved a lot and worked as a bookkeeper in the interim. Right, mm-hmm. there's someone right in the next town over that's like uh, my nephew's missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. So ultimately it was eventually determined that the most likely scenario was that Green met Boggs in a gay bar, lured him to the offices with the promises of more drinks and sex, and then was subdued with a stun gun and suffocated. It seems like Green was an alcoholic and probably down on his luck, and these maniacs just killed him. Like they just picked him crime of opportunity. And they killed him. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I they- don't even think it matters that he looked a little like handsome. No. At they all. probably weren't even trying for nope. that.
2: No. So they probably knew, like, we're going to do this to someone, and then we're sort of looking for someone to do it to.
3: Yes. We're looking for a victim that is from part of society that's marginalized. I was yeah. going to
1: say, they probably thought because he was in a
3: gay bar that nobody would be looking for mm-hmm. him. Exactly. Yep. Or that the family would be too embarrassed. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Jeez. So although it was clear to me that Boggs was involved, I wasn't sure just how involved he was. Boggs' story alone could be a long-form podcast or a movie. I found out that he faked old EKG results and put them in a file for the fake Hanson. And get oh. this. On October 28, 1988, a Hollywood computer operator named Barry Pomeroy walked up to the public counter of the Glendale police station to file a complaint against a prominent doctor. He said the doctor had tried to kill him with a stun gun. Oh. Yes. Pomeroy's tale, later repeated at a preliminary hearing, was very strange. Boggs, he said, approached him one night in a West Hollywood bar called The Spike. Their conversation led to dinner, a trip to Glendale to see its new high-rise architecture, and a quick stop by the doctor's medical office. A few days later, the doctor took him there again on their way to a Glendale restaurant. He offered to give Pomeroy an EKG, and Pomeroy accepted. What? What? Then the doctor opened his arms and folded Pomeroy in what Pomeroy thought was going to be an embrace, but instead began to jab at the back of his neck with a small black oh. device that gave a paralyzing shock. What the fuck? Quote, at first I thought he was into some kind of kinky sex, Pomeroy said oh. in an interview, but it just became so intense I realized that he was trying to kill me. Oh my Mm-hmm. In a panic, Pomeroy fought free. To his surprise, the doctor apologized and offered to stitch a bloody cut on Pomeroy's neck before persuading him to accept a ride home. What did he explain? Like, how did he explain himself? I don't know, but think about like victim mentality, where you're just like, "Uh, yeah, fine, just stitch it up and drive me home. Like, oh, just get me the fuck out of my here."
1: God. You know,
3: like who knows what Boggs said to him you know? Sorry
1: about the thing where I tried to tase you, like, or whatever Yeah, or
3: maybe he, thought he could have, like, played it as, like, oh, I thought you might have been into that. I'm really sorry if it made you look uh, uncomfortable. You know? Like, he could have just gaslit him in a number of different yeah, ways.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: Therefore making Pomeroy just be like, yeah, okay, just yeah, just drive me home. Oh, what was God. his
2: motive for that, though? Why is he trying to kill him?
3: Because he needs a body, honey. So yeah, he, he would gonna... be that
2: he would have been yeah. the body. Was yeah. this pretty recent to that time?
3: It was a few days before. A few oh. days. Oh, sorry. Oh. Because the The story lacked corroboration. The district attorney's office declined to file charges against the doctor, who a detective informed Pomeroy had been, quote, an outstanding member of the community for 20 years. Mm. So they're like, you're just a gay guy in a bar. We don't believe you. This doctor has been around forever. He's very well respected. Yeah. So you're a liar. Oh,
1: my gosh. Wow. Yeah.
3: Um, Pomeroy considered the episode surreal, but what he didn't know was that he was a test run. Because Boggs killed Green a week later.
2: Oh, uh, so, oh man. Yeah. So he could have stopped Green's killing if the police had listened to him.
3: They could have stopped it. Right. Yes. Right. Mm hmm. Wow. Uh huh. So Boggs has an insanely impressive history. He was born during the Depression in South Dakota. He went to med school in Southern California. His residency was at the Boston City Hospital under Harvard's premier neurologist, Derek Denny Brown. He was a neurologist, not just a GP. He was wealthy, had a wife, four kids, lived in a gorgeous home. He created one of the first HMOs in Southern California with 22 doctors and thousands of patients. He was ambitious, and by 1976, he was bankrupt, literally millions of dollars in
1: debt.
3: He owed money to the U.S. Small Business Administration, banks, and leasing agencies, and dozens of friends and physicians. Friends say that Boggs, after his bankruptcy, was never the same again. In 1974, his membership with the American Medical Association lapsed for non-payment of dues. Two years later, so did his membership in the American Neurological Association, and he was never reinstated. His 17-year marriage ended in 1978. While still living with his wife and family, Boggs moved a young man who worked in his office into the guest house of the Flintridge estate, supposedly as a tenant. Wow. In 1976, he purchased a luxury condominium in the we- in West Hollywood jointly with Jeff Tombrello, a psychotherapist in his mid-30s who had worked in Boggs' office. They decorated it with oversized leather couches, marble floors, mirrors on the walls and ceilings, oh. and a jacuzzi in the tub. It became notorious for the flow of visitors. His wife had told friends that she was exhausted by the bizarre turn her husband's life had taken. And in a 1981 action to collect $33,000 in unpaid child support, Lola Boggs told the court her ex-husband carried a gun and had threatened to kill her several times, once telling her that he, quote, could hire someone to do that. Mm. By 1976, both Glendale Memorial Hospital and Verdugo Hills Hospital, where he was previously employed, had taken Boggs off of their staff for disciplinary reasons. But the state's medical oversight system, unlike the legal system, evaluated the criticism in secret and took no action. A partial record of Boggs' 1981 expulsion from Glendale Adventist Medical Center leaked into the public domain during a malpractice case in which Boggs was accused of conducting repeated, unnecessary, and damaging surgeries.
2: Oh, He's like Dr. Dove. Dr. Dove, honey. Mm-hmm.
3: In a 1981 letter to the hospital's board of trustees reviewing Boggs' standard of practice, Dr. John C. Gunnell cited a long list of medical deficiencies. The letter explained why the hospital's medical staff had voted unanimously to not renew Boggs' staff privileges. It was a blunt accusation of, quote, extensive evidence of patient harm patient suffering, flagrant disregard for timely, accurate medical charting, an apparent lack of awareness of wrongdoing, patients being subjugated to unnecessary and life-threatening diagnostic procedures, oh. inadequate medical management resulting in life-threatening complications and vital organ destruction, oh an admitted God. practice of intentionally not visiting hospitalized patients nor arranging for another physician to visit hospitalized patients as a matter of practice. Oh. He was Doctor Death. Yep. He was cutting people it open really and yeah. walking away.
2: Yeah. Oh, my What the gosh.
3: fuck? <clears throat> yeah. So his patient roles declined, and into the office came a succession of young male assistants and hangers-on. Mm-hmm. He never acknowledged that he was gay, even under pointed questions, and explained away that the many young men in his office were his sons. Okay. okay. That's what he would tell. So most of his patients were elderly women. So he would tell these women that... Those were his sons, and that's why they were, they, he had a lot of children. Ugh. When Boggs' office was searched in September of 1998, investigators found paraphernalia for manufacturing methamphetamine. Ugh. His last roommate, Hans Johansson, who was also the office physical therapist, testified at Boggs's preliminary hearing that he was trying to make the drug at Boggs's request but didn't succeed. Boggs, who was 57 at the time, was convicted of murder, grand theft, assault, and insurance fraud in the murder of Ellis Henry Green. July 12, 1990, the jury deadlocked on whether to recommend life in prison or the death penalty for the Glendale physician, but life in prison was eventually decided, and Boggs died in 2003 of a heart attack. Wow. Okay, so now we're going to move on to Hanson and Hawkins. This is how the LA Times describes Hanson and Hawkins. Quote, Hanson, who was seven years younger than Boggs, became his patient and later, after he moved to Columbus, Ohio, continued to stop in on trips west. The other is Hanson's young partner, John B. Hawkins, a muscular, sometimes male hustler and ladies' man, self-avowed scammer, and former bartender at Manhattan Studio 54. Whoa. Hawkins, a high school dropout, met Hanson, and the two became friends and business partners. Not one to be consumed by business details, the brash, attractive Hawkins was widely known for being more absorbed in parties and sex. His own mother described him to a Columbus reporter as a, quote, Gigolo and male prostitute. Whoa. So when Hanson, aka Wolfgang von Snowden, <laughs> My I Lord. can't with that, was arrested at the airport, he did have a book on him entitled How to Create a New Identity. He had also had extensive plastic surgery. And oh. it, it looks like a lot of bad 80s like, plastic surgery. He's puffy and he has like, that Michael Jackson Joan Rivers nose. Oh. Like. No. Yeah. When he was arrested entering the country from Mexico, authorities said he carried identification cards in 13 different names. Dang. Hanson is 78 and he's incarcerated currently at California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. Oh, wow. And then there's John Hawkins.
2: So, John wants the speedy process cremation. He's John's the, the self avowed hustler
3: mm-hmm. and gigolo. And he, from all accounts, was very attractive. Mm. So in August of 1991, Hawkins was arrested by, Italy, by Italian police and military police from the United States submarine base at La Maddalena. He was arrested on a yacht. Oh, whoa. <laughs> John Barrett Hawkins, 28, was taken into custody on the Mediterranean island of Sardinia after Italian police were informed of his whereabouts through a tip. Hawkins was turned in by an ex-girlfriend. She was very angry when she found out that he was bisexual. The 24-year-old Dutch woman had met Hawkins in Ibiza in 1990 and again in Amsterdam. Glendale Police Detective John Perkins said, quote, She saw implications on America's Most Wanted that he was gay, and she couldn't believe it. She called the TV station in Amsterdam and was put in touch with America's Most Wanted, which aired the story about the fugitive,
1: and they called the police.
2: Wow. Oh, so he didn't even come out to her. She saw it on... She saw it on... And yeah, John Walsh was like,
1: I need to report him because he's a bad person. <laughs> no, she was
2: like,
3: I'm pissed. mad. Yeah, she's like,
1: I'm so mad that he likes <laughs> oh boys too. Oh, my Lord. Yeah.
2: Damn.
3: Police said that Hawkins and two accomplices had been cruising around Sardinia for a month on a catamaran named the Carpe Diem. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Before berthing at Canagone near Obaya on the northeast coast of the island, Italian authorities said he eluded capture by using false passports and a variety of disguises and aliases. Hawkins romanced beautiful women while selling his sexual services to rich and famous men, Perkins said. He, quote, he was getting $5,000 a call. If I told you the last guy he serviced in L.A., you wouldn't believe Whoa, it. Whoa, the yes. actual person.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. who it
3: was? Yeah. Ooh. So at New York Studio 54 Nightclub, where Hawkins was a bartender in 1981, he became the lover of the designer Halston and also the club's owner, Steve Rubell. In his years on the run, Hawkins changed his name frequently, dyed his hair and wore phony beards and mustaches, but did not undergo plastic surgery. quote uh, "This is Perkins again." quote "He was too vain to change his face," the detective said. He did have lip injections to make his lips fuller while he was in Canada. He said Hawkins also took steroids to add bulk to his six foot one 190 pound frame. Ugh. So Hawkins fled after the murder and he had embezzled $1.8 million from the clothing company he and Hanson owned with a third partner.
4: Whoa. The
3: name of the store chain was just Sweats. Damn. Oh, <laughs> no. It wasn't. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> so, when everything was said and done, he had gotten over $1.5 million in insurance payouts plus the $1.8 million he had stolen. Damn. Yes, which is why he was able to live on the run for so long. Yeah. In 1995, minutes before he was sentenced to life in prison, John Hawkins got married in the judges' chambers. Um, 2014, Hawkins was released from prison. His side of the story is that, quote, the doctor would purchase a cadaver from a medical school or teaching hospital, identify the body as my business partner, sign the death certificate, natural causes, and then send the body to a mortuary. And my role was to have the body cremated, scatter the ashes at sea, and collect the insurance money. Instead, Boggs picked up a man at a bar, Ellis Green, and killed him. Hawkins said he knew nothing of the murder. Mm.
2: He thought that that body was already dead.
3: Yeah, so he thought yeah. it was a cadaver. Yeah, that's what he's claiming. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, he wasn't there. He wasn't in LA. He was in Ohio. Yeah. So I could
2: see. I don't. It makes sense from Boggs's perspective too. Like he wouldn't want to implicate or tell himself. He wouldn't want to implicate himself by telling a bunch of people, "I'm actually going to murder this person." So yeah, like he's probably. That would make sense that he would say, I'm just going to get it from a mortuary.
3: But if he would have done that, there would have been a paper trail. And I think that's why he didn't.
2: Um, right? You think, but no, I don't think he did. But I believe that he told oh, yeah. this guy that, yeah. He, yeah. that that's what he but was I think do. he,
3: And that might have been Box's original plan until he realized that you have to fill out a lot of paperwork to get a cadaver.
2: Mm-hmm. You
3: can't just walk into a mortuary or a medical school and be like, I'll take that body. Thank <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> Uh, Quote, I was actually in maximum security prisons for the entire time. For the first 17 years, there was no glimmer of hope whatsoever. The most horrible thing is losing your freedom and being separated from the people you love. While in prison, Hawken got involved in a program to help troubled teens. Police and school principals brought them to prison to hear inmates' stories and to steer kids away from drugs and gangs. So it's like a scared straight program. Yeah, yeah, totally. um, So as John began to see the kids changed, he changed himself. Quote, it was an opportunity for me to give back and make amends," Hawkins said. And every day, he says he thought about Ellis Green, a man he never met, a fellow Ohioan, and how his death affected his family. Hawkins said that Green's father's health declined, his mother suffered a heart attack, and his sister tried an overdose of pills, and oh. his twin brother committed suicide. Oh
2: my God! So, like, the death
3: of Green tore his whole family oh, was destroyed. It's terrible, wow. and no one talks about that yeah. in this segment. No, you know, of like,
1: not, yeah. That's terrible.
3: Quote, my actions caused immeasurable devastation to this family's life, he said softly. While incarcerated, Hawkins counseled kids and worked so hard that police officers and principals wrote letters to the parole board. After 20 years, Hawkins was freed. Hawkins is now an author, youth speaker, oh. and business coach. Whoa. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that's the story that's cool. of Melvin Eugene Hansen, Richard Boggs, Ellis Green, and John Hawkins.
2: Wow. <laughs>
3: Damn. Yeah. Damn. Pretty wild, right? Wild. Yeah. We'll be right back after this short break.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
3: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
2: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Hey, Resolvers. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? It's understandable to feel anxious and unsure during this difficult time. Did you know BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist? You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, especially now when in-person counseling isn't always available. Start communicating in under 24 hours. This is not self-help. It's professional counseling. You can send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating a great therapeutic match, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. The service is also available for clients worldwide. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. Licensed professional counselors specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, family conflicts, LBGT matters, grief, and self-esteem. Anything you share is completely confidential. It's convenient, professional, and affordable professional therapy. This is not a crisis line. Check out the positive testimonials posted daily on their site. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Resolvers, start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com mysteries. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelpcom mysteries.
1: Chickens, Diet Coke, reality TV, and murder don't seem like things that should go together, but somehow they do. If you're looking for your next binge-worthy podcast
2: and you like your true crime light on the gore, then you should check out our show, Moms and Murder, a true crime podcast hosted by myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Each week, we give our
3: take on a new crime story, balancing our delivery of facts and levity while still giving the stories the respect they deserve and making you feel like you're a part of the conversation. And there are over 100 episodes to binge. Search Moms and Murder on your favorite podcast app and subscribe so you never miss a new episode.
1: Um, okay, are you ready for a Stowie? Yeah, oh. tell us a story. Tell us a what is story. Are you ready for a fraudy?
2: Basically our second fraud of
1: the app. Yeah. Yep. It's true. And it's kind of multi layered too with the added um, intrigue of a missing person. Mm-hmm. So um, June 8th, 1985 at, on Lake Michigan... At 9.30 p.m., a derelict yacht had been reported drifting just offshore. So they show a policeman in the reenactment. His name is Officer Wayne Brooks. He runs out to the boat, and he's like, police, anybody on board? So and then he commits to this. I know. Oh, my gosh, honey. And then Calm down. It's He just a sees boat. the boat, and he can hear the engine running. So he starts swimming out to it. Um, And as he's swimming out to it, the engine dies, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, So he climbs up on the boat thinking that he may find potentially like the victim of a heart attack or something. Um, He searches the entire boat and doesn't find anyone. He says, when I arrived, the engines were running. If someone had fallen off the boat, in my opinion, they could not have gotten on the boat because it would have been moving away from them. So I was like, whoa, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. So Stack says the owner of the yacht was a 42-year-old investment counselor named Woody Kelly, and neither Woody nor his body has ever been found. Um, they show a photo of Woody. Do you have one? Um, yeah, I just have that one. This guy's 42? Yeah. Oh,
2: no.
3: I didn't I'm even sorry. realize that.
2: I thought he was in his late 50s Oh, right. sure. Yes, it's unbelievable. He's not living the
1: healthiest life, I don't think. That's yeah, too close to my
3: age for me to feel good about that at all.
1: And he looks like he could be your dad. So um, Woody and his family had settled near Lake Michigan in 1975 in the small town of Antioch. Stack explains that they started out in a small, modest home, but Woody's business began to grow over the years and thrive. And so they moved into a mansion near a lake. Stack says Woody was very respected in the town, basically because he was outgoing, personable, and very rich. I was going to say, and rich Mm -hmm. AF. Antioch Mayor Robert Wilton says Woody was a, quote, pillar of the community. <laughs> Aren't always, they always? always? guys? Always. Always. Um, but he was actually, like, really involved. He was in the Antioch Rotary. He was in the Lions Club. He was in the Knights of Columbus, which I didn't bother to look into. Um, and he was also, like, very involved in the Catholic Church there. So cut to an interview with Lita Wilson. Um, and her title below her name is Mayor's Wife. Oh, I saw that. Which I was like, guys. <laughs> It's not the same as, like, First Lady. <laughs> like, that's not her title. It's First Lady Maybe of they, the they town. They just wanted to show that she's connected to them. Totally. I was like, I guess yeah. they had to have a reason this lady is being right. interviewed. But still, I was like, no. She takes the mayor's day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they might as well just put that. <laughs> so Lita just goes on to explain again how likable and charismatic Woody was. Everyone loved him. Um, Stack says that Woody was a real family man and loved to invite friends and neighbors over to his amazing house. And then there's a reenactment of a bunch of people in like the most heinous white rich people 80s outfits. And they're all just laughing boogeyly like ho, 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 around the pool. But Stack says that um, eventually a lot of Woody's friends... Became his business clients. Lita says he'd become your friend and make you actually want to invest money. Then she's quoted saying, God, I wish I had some money I could give him. And I was just <laughs> oh, like, Oh, yes. Who feels that way? Or like, also she's like, uh-huh, But I don't because my husband makes all the financial decisions. <laughs> totally. But also it's just like, it's not like he was at this point like a struggling. Like I'm just getting started in my business. Yeah. Like, but
3: it's because you feel that way because you see how rich they are. And they're like, look
1: how rich I am. You could be this rich too. Okay. So maybe that's what she That's means. what it is. I was is. like, I've never felt that way about, I love you guys so much, but I've never been like, I just wish I could give you all my money. No, it's because we're not rich as shit. <laughs> like you want to give rich people your money so that you get rich too. Got it. Okay.
3: Yeah.
2: I died. La- I even screenshot that, even though it's not my segment. Cause I just love it so much. God, I, I wish like, I
1: had some money I could give. Them. Ever
2: said that before?
1: <laughs> Um one of Woody's biggest clients was veterinarian Daniel Osgood. Osgood said it seemed like a professional operation, substantial office space, office staff. His reports were exacting. It just gave you a vote of confidence. Is he the one that the reenactor takes around the office and says, "This is
2: this guy. This is this guy." He's like, <laughs> no, "I don't even remember that." He holds it together here. <laughs>
3: so meanwhile no one's holding anything together no and they're one. just like typing up fake re- like imagine being like his reports were exacting
1: it's I like know. how the hell do you know. how would you know have you
3: ever seen a financial report yeah, in your life you truly don't know you're a horse doctor at all <laughs> <laughs> um so we're gonna get a message about that
2: about from who who do you think from an
3: insulted veterinarian i respect your work
2: <laughs> definitely and there's big animal doctors and little animal. I know. Big and little. So I just
3: made it up that he was a horse doctor, but he I guess... He might have
2: been a cat doctor. Okay. Um, you can
3: tell
1: we haven't recorded in a while because we are <laughs> silly as shit. We are. Um, Woody was able to promise and deliver a 16 to 19% interest on investments, which is good. Margaret Kearney, an investor, says Woody was not pushy, but he was enthusiastic about what he was doing. He did not come on a hard sell. He was fairly laid back, and he assured me that this was a good investment, etc. He really had just convinced her, like, this was a good move, and she trusted him so much. She was like, great. Stack tells us that Woody's business flourished. He bought four luxury cars, two airplanes, three homes, and six boats. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a lot so of money. money. As a casual little side hobby, he even started a yacht charter service. Oh, that's right. Stack says Woody was very generous and would take his friends and family out on lake cruises, and in a few cases, he treated them to expensive vacations. I mean, dream. I, I mean, I want to be friends with him. a yeah, good friend to have. I'm not, I'm not dying to give him my money, but
3: I'll <laughs> get on that one pl- lady.
1: Yeah, I'll <laughs> get on his plane. Lita says, I asked him if he robbed banks for a living, and he just laughed. <laughs> Lita says they trusted him so much, in fact, that they were building a restaurant and they were going to go into business with him. Oh, right. Um, June 8th, 1985, Woody showed up at a yacht dealer to check on a new boat he just purchased. David Kelly, the yacht service manager, says Woody wanted to just take off. Kelly was like, oh, like, do you want me to go out with you? You know, it's this brand new boat he's never driven before. Right. Kelly also explains that their policy is that nobody just drives off alone. Good policy to have, probably. <laughs> yes. Um, but Woody was so adamant about it, saying he had people waiting on him. I'm like, who has... Like a appointment directly after a yacht pickup. Like <laughs> I mean, I don't know. We're not wealthy we enough have, to yeah. have a we,
3: yacht we pickup. Can't. No.
1: I'm assuming you're pretty busy if you oh have a yacht. God. I guess, I suppose. <laughs> um, so Kelly says he helped him cast off and quote, Well, that was the last we seen of him. Stack says Woody was going to I wanna say this right, Wauquigan, Illinois. I don't know. Question mark? um, And left at about 3 p.m. He told his family he'd be home by 6, but never returned. The next couple days, the Coast Guard retraced Woody's path. Since Woody's, quote, distinctive sunglasses were found on board, they assumed he'd fallen overboard. <laughs> He's been wearing, like, giant heart-shaped sunglasses for two years, just <laughs> building up to this. I was trying to imagine, what would they be that's so different yeah, from everybody else? They're like Elton John sunglasses. They must have they been. They are
2: kind of aviator style and Covered in aviator, rhinestones. Aviator, but
1: white. But those mean, are his eyeglasses. eyeglasses. Those are his eyeglasses. We're talking his sun. Oh, They're sunglasses. tinted. Sunny's honey. Stack explains that because drowning victims eventually float they were searching for a body but they found nothing so then they cut to the yachtiest stack we've ever seen (laughs) i wrote in my notes i watched this so long ago but i wrote in my notes that he was wearing burberry plaid again really and i think that's why no. i was confused last episode when i said he's wearing a leather jacket because i think you this one he was burberry with the leather jacket oh so burberry equals desert and yacht for stock yes okay. just outdoor ventures in general okay. but not a sweater tied over the shoulders yeah no. you would think he would have went yeah. for like the yacht rock look. Yeah, yeah yeah um but nice he did country have club look. oh no no it wasn't the leather jacket okay i have it here so he also had like super pleated khakis of course and a short trench so it was like a tan <laughs> windbreaker no, no, jacket. No. With huge lapels. No. But, like, tan like the trench. No. So, yeah. I think the costume department was like, how do we do, like, stack trench vibes but, like, with a yachty spin? (laughs) And that's what they found. (laughs) Um, so Stack says the town of Antioch went from sadness to shock and then anger. He explains that the same week Kelly went missing, a client of his had filed a civil suit for improper business practices. After Kelly had vanished, Detective Dan Collin from the Lake County Sheriff's Department became involved in the investigation. Dan Collin says when the office staff started going through the records, they realized there was no money in the bank accounts. He explains that every time money came into the accounts, it would be spent right away. Classic. He says, immediately looking in the checkbooks, you knew it was a fraud. Stack says that they realized that the bulk of the money was going directly into Woody's pocket, almost $6 million that was missing.
4: Jesus.
1: Margaret Kearney says, in 1981, I gave Woody $110,000 to invest for me. I have never recovered one cent. That sucks. Dorothy Schakowsky says, my husband and I invested our money with Woody after we sold our home, and we invested 30000 Daniel Osgood says his wow. investment with Kelly was an excessive 400000 Jesus. And the what? entire sum was completely lost. So of course uh. I looked up what that is in 2020 uh-huh. money. $829,703.23. Uh. Is
2: that the veterinarian? Uh-huh.
3: Yes. What How? the hell?
1: How? How? What How? kind of horse is honey? It must have been horse's only honey. <laughs>
2: Race horses, fancy race horses.
1: Yeah, Um, Colin says that Woody would basically take any type of investor. He did not have a specific type. He included everybody. He was quote non-segregational. He took anybody. He says he like makes the joke and then looks right into the camera, smiling. Dumb, dumb. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, so, what happened to Woody Kelly's ass stack? Some think <laughs> what happened to Woody Kelly's ass? <laughs> <laughs> it's gone. It's just gone. Um, some think he was murdered by, quote, a former partner in crime. Another rumor is that an accomplice picked him up by boat or seaplane. The detective goes on to say that they get a lot of reports of sightings of Kelly, but they're from multiple locations all over. Nothing has ever been a solid lead to follow. The detective also says that if Woody were to just walk back in the door today, people would give him ten dollars even though they have just lost thousands because he's so likable stack says today woody kelly would be 46 years old and they give they're just like oh and he may have different color hair and a beard by now like they always say like thanks (laughs) yes and then they show like a few videos of him before he disappeared so research time Um, woody kelly where the hell are you buddy Man, uh woody was born in pittsburgh to natalie and woodruff s kelly senior After Woody came a brother and two sisters, his parents divorced right before he graduated from high school. And when he did graduate, he immediately went into the Navy, um, which was like the early years of Vietnam. So Kelly was in the Navy for 12 years, and it probably would have been his life's career if things had not gone sour. He was discharged in 1974 as a first-class petty officer, and he would later join the Army Reserves, but I wasn't sure exactly where that fit in with this. Um, In 1974, Woody's son developed leukemia, After he took ill, the Navy assigned Woody to some god-awful hellhole where his son couldn't get medical treatment, so he quit, says Leisner. Um, And this article that I found, which was from a major newspaper, didn't give a first name of Leisner, so I'm not sure what it was. (laughs) So then it's not your fault. Um, I found that name again in another article, but I don't know. Um, He was bitter about the Navy at the end because he couldn't be near his family. So, I mean... That's not. I mean, that makes sense. Totally, this what the guy. Fuck? And this is kind of where my, for me, the story turned a little bit. Like I was like, he's not all bad. Like he cared about his family. Um, and like they, he gets assigned to Guam, and his son has leukemia. They're not going to totally. Have the so, so it's like either you live separate from your son, who's got yeah, a yeah. terminal illness, yeah. or he's out there with that's no sad. treatment. Yeah, that's really sad. So in 1975 um, is when Woody and his family moved to Antioch and Woody starts various business ventures. So first he had like they called it a citizen band radio shop in a small shopping center in Zion It folded in 1978. What's a citizen band radio shop? I don't know what that means, but they literally, like, sold radios. For people who, like, did ham radio or people who wanted to listen to music? I guess. So, Kelly's explanation was, quote, an Arab sheik's son reneged on payment for hundreds of outdated 19-channel CB radios, which Kelly had bought shortly before the Federal Communications Commission authorized 40-channel radios. Wait. An Arab sheik's son? Yes. Come on, Kelly. Um... Reneged on 90? How many? Um, 900? No, just reneged on payment for hundreds of hundreds. outdated 19-channel CB radios, because 40-channel CB radios were, like, the new Ugh, thing, so weird. he, like, duped him into buying all these things that nobody cared about. I don't... In the world? How in the world did he know an Arab um, sheet? What no? is happening? It says, Woody got paid for the first, <laughs> first shipment. The second is probably still over there in some Jitta warehouse, says Leisner. Jitta? I had to look that up. It's It's a city.
2: So many words happening.
1: So I think the reason that story is important is that's where Woody learned that you could fraud. That's his first Friday, Friday fraud. Because then he goes into these other things that are kind of like a similar... So he got frauded and then was like, oh, okay, valuable life lesson. Exactly. Wow. So Jay Burgess, the the president of Burgess Anderson and Tate Incorporated, an office stationery company in Zion, said Woody ran up a bill for a couple hundred dollars from my company. He never paid, though I never pushed hard enough to collect. He phoned one day (laughs) and said he was having a hard time financially sometime later i heard he was selling insurance in waukegan the next time i heard from woody he was making it real big in antioch and this guy even like went and saw him in antioch and saw all his like massive offices and like expensive shit and, and his rolexes like, can you pay me can my pay 200 dollars bitch no okay. this is how this guy like oh that's how good he was is that yes. what you're saying like people just would let him do stuff yeah, they wanted is
2: that too yeah
1: yeah And if you get
2: enough people like that, it just starts to build and build mm -hmm. and you don't have to pay anyone back and you are respected and... Yeah,
1: it's crazy. So then there's just like a string of investments and like the yacht charter thing starts. Um, So by then, Kelly's family is living in their giant mansion, fancy offices, blah, blah, blah. But the thing was, Woody didn't really explain his business to anybody and most of the people around him had no idea how he'd become rich in the first place. So one rumor circulated was that his windfall somehow stemmed from a change in government pension laws. Another rumor said he had big winnings in Las Vegas but he was never known to gamble so I don't know. Quote, we all assumed he was making lots of money with smart investments. He hung around with bigwigs, the bankers, or rather, they hung around him, said a man by the name of Rupus, who had invested 25000 with Kelly. Wow. I think people trusted Woody Kelly because he was such a strong family man. His family always came first, said Sally Leisner. He did all oh, the right Sally things. Sally Leisner. Yeah, but I think there were two. Mm. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm a little confused. He did all the right things for the right causes. He was on the Easter Seals board when I became president. He worked very hard for any organization that gave money to handicapped children. Everyone who knew Kelly did agree that he was very devoted to his wife and children. Kelly had been known to say more than once, everything is for sale except a man's family. Hmm. So. And faking your death or whatever. <laughs> so it seems essentially what Kelly was doing was a Ponzi scheme um, involving a lot of second trust mortgages. So a Ponzi scheme, if you don't know, is a form of fraud in which belief in the success of a non-existent enterprise is fostered by the payment of quick returns to the first investors Mm -hmm. from money invested by later investors. Mm -hmm. So basically, you're constantly finding new investors, using the money from them to pay back the old investors. But like in order to keep doing it, you have to keep finding new ones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So eventually you plateau. Yes. So Kelly also made sure that early investors did, did get interest, but he tried to persuade most of them to let it continue to accrue. Um, a few people who invested in early '81 got out early and did profit. So, like, mm-hmm. there were people to say like, "Oh, I made all this money right. from Woody." And a second trust loan is another, like, layer of this. It's an alternative to private mortgage insurance, also known as piggyback loans. A first mortgage is taken out for 80% of the home's value, a down payment of 10% is made, and another 10% is financed in a second trust at a higher interest rate. So again, it's kind of like borrowing money that's not really there. Mm -hmm. Um, Kelly told his investors that he was funneling their money through a California corporation that specialized the loans and would pay up to a 20% return. Um, As Stack mentioned in the episode, the FBI followed the trail of money to accounts in Florida, which were all empty by the time they looked into them. So in 1985, Illinois served Kelly a court order to stop selling securities, and the Illinois attorney general was preparing to subpoena records and freeze Kelly's assets, but that's when he disappeared. So it's kind of interesting because he hadn't been outed yet and nobody was actually coming for him yet. So you think he just kind of like knew it? That's what I'm not sure. Like, like he <laughs> caught wind of that they were going to be freezing That's or either, I think either that or he was just like, I can't go on forever. They're going to find out something. He might have had someone like on the inside right. giving him yeah, a Yeah, maybe. So um, after his disappearance, no one in the family would talk. Their attorneys like definitely advised them not to speak to anybody in the media. And I think that's why they didn't interview on UM. Yeah. Because none of them were on UM,
3: and because they know where he was or is. Oria
2: was murdered While by the your, derelict yacht. Yeah, the derelict yacht got him.
1: <laughs> what? Oh, like the yacht ran over him.
2: <laughs> the yacht, yeah, It turned like all Christine, like Stephen King's Christine. You know? It is a funny thing to call an inanimate object derelict. derelict. I know. <laughs> the minute you That's said why it, I, I started, put the word in. I started I laughing. Like, it's really like, what stuck? is he? he has like a tiny switchblade. He's like, come. I know. I was come like, me. <laughs> He does. He has a motor. It is a mini
1: switchblade. See? <laughs> Many little switchblades. yacht. can't trust him. Um, quote, is the, it is the intention and desire of Ann Kelly to cooperate fully with the United States Attorney's Office. We have cooperated with the Federal Bureau of Investigation and furnished it with records and photographs of Woodruff Kelly, says Taryn and Kelly's attorney, adding, his disappearance represents a tragedy for Ann Kelly and her family. Um, none of the people involved in the business offices would be interviewed either. Uh, retired optometrist, Robert Bywell says, I figure Woody will be back in two or three years. Some judge will sentence him to three years in the clink and find him 500 and he'll get out in 18 months. Bywell had invested 50,000 with Kelly. Oh man. He's like, yeah, he'll be back. He'll definitely he'll be He's back. definitely coming back. And right. Back. And so is my money. Um, <laughs> The theory that Kelly had drowned or committed suicide was definitely plausible. A Coast Guardsman from Kenosha observed that if it were Lake Erie, the body would be up in three days later, like clockwork. With Lake Michigan, sometimes it takes months. Mm. Yeah. So, oh, and then there was another quote from Herb Peterson, who was a boat skipper and Kelly's friend, who believed he was dead, and said, it is not unheard of for the lake not to give up its victims. Some bodies are never recovered. So, Hmm. There were different camps for he's alive or he's dead. Uh, a lot of the people interviewed at with the press at the time definitely thought he was alive. This guy, the one of the people who was gonna go into restaurant business with him said, if I saw Woody today, I might clobber him. But I'd also want to hug him and sit down and ask why. Weird. Wow, this guy's personality. Yeah, yeah there magic. were magic. I just have like endless yeah. quotes from people being like mixed um, feelings. Oh, Bill Leistner, that's the mm. name. Uh, he was an ost- ostentatious sob, but a lovable one. Um, if he it's came like back today like, and needed ten thousand for an investment, I'd give it to him, no questions asked.
3: What? That's crazy. Are they're you all just like about? acting like he—it's
1: insane. Uh, they're
3: acting like what he did wasn't that big of a deal and wasn't
1: financially devastating to them totally. in one way or another. I don't totally. get it. Or the one guy's like, I would just ask him why. Like, he has a good reason.
2: <laughs> I get saying, like, gosh, I really loved him, and I loved hanging out with him. It sucks he did this. Yeah. I would get that. I would no, I don't understand. I hate that what he did, but I still give him money, yeah. even though
1: he lost me all my money. It's crazy. I don't yeah. understand. It's crazy. I don't. Like, literally three different people at quotes saying that. So, in the years following Woody's disappearance, his wife wanted him to be presumed legally dead, you know, so that the family could, like, yeah, collect get money and move on. Um, they had truly been left in the lurch. Um, they, they did definitely need the money, but I think they actually truly believed he was dead also. Um, there were a couple reported sightings of Woody in those years right after the disappearance. One reported sighting was in late 1990 in Tampa, Florida, by Stanley Ewan, deputy chief of the Lake County Sheriff's Police. The other was in 1991 by James McGrain, a captain of the city's fire department. Um, and Waukegan is 20 miles from Antioch which is where Kelly was living huh. um, Ewan said he passed with, within 3 feet of Kelly at Bush Gardens
0: what? he
1: said he was sure the man was Kelly because they had gone out for drinks together so it wasn't just like I know that guy from mm-hmm. pictures in the news like I knew him um, he says we passed each other and stared at each other if you're on the lam what the fuck are you doing at Bush Gardens yes you I would you gotta have fun sometime though right Oh, my God.
2: You got to hit up the theme park.
1: I guess. By yourself. (laughs) McGrain was driving when a Lincoln town car pulled alongside him at a traffic light. He said Kelly, wearing sunglasses and sitting behind the wheel, waved at him. What? I don't know. I don't buy that. Um, Terrence Lavin, the Chicago attorney for Kelly's ex-wife, Anne, and their children, said that he thought the reported sightings were ridiculous. Quote, a lot of people have seen Elvis too, Lavin said. And I think each of these sightings is a case of mistaken identity. He looks like a lot of like he looks like white guys very generic. Yeah, the archetype of like an old white guy from that time. Totally. Unique looking. Um, three insurance policies were to be at stake if Kelly was declared dead. A $200,000 policy with Jackson National Life would go to the Antioch Bank, which held it as collateral for loans to Kelly. The other two, 250000 and 100000 are with other companies and would go to Kelly's ex-wife, Ann V. Proctor, who obtained a divorce by default in 1988. So in 1994, Kelly's family went to court for a life insurance suit. Lake County Associate Circuit Judge Emilio B. Santi ruled that he could not clear up the mystery of whether or not Kelly was alive. He said to, to Kelly's family in the closing statements that it was implausible to think that Kelly's body lies at the bottom of Lake Michigan and impossible to say he's dead. Well,
3: I don't understand, like, everything floats except for in Lake Michigan. I don't understand that.
2: The tides are just They keep qualifying different.
3: it? Is it because it's so big? I, I think, think so. It's huge, right? Lake Michigan? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, But, so like, Erie is, too, so it must just have different, like,
1: systems that... Or like, temperatures or something? Yeah, I guess. I assumed it's, like, way bigger than Erie, but I'm not sure.
2: It's weird that the wife would get a divorce by default. hmm Then she wouldn't be able to collect on any of his money. Yeah, oh, I don't really? know. Unless she could because she's still the mother of his children, so maybe they would use it Well, for and, them. like, they shared an
1: estate together, so... Yeah. I don't know. Huh. Um... He said, this may not be any solace to the family, but it leaves open the hope that maybe one day your dad and your former husband may finally reappear, which I think is a weird thing for a judge to say. Um, Kelly's children and Anne, who then went by Anne Proctor, were stunned by the ruling. If they had won, the children would have gotten $45,000 in life insurance. Um, And as I said, the Bank of Antioch would have gotten $200,000. During the trial, attorneys from four insurance companies successfully argued that Kelly had vanished in order to keep the money and avoid going to prison. Attorneys for the family argued that Kelly must have fallen off the yacht. His son, Chris, testified through tears in court, saying that the family was all certain Woody would have contacted them by now if he was alive. But basically, they thought that that proved he had to have died in June of 1985, because Mm -hmm. they were like, we for sure would have heard from him by now. Quote, we were all victims and will all continue to be victims, he said. So um, the Kellys basically were poor after Woody disappeared. Oh, my God. Anne had to move into a new city, into a small apartment. Both the sons had to drop out of college. Oh, my God. Um, Judge Santee's ruling was based on there being too many doubts in the case and that it was fair to draw inference of a well-planned scheme to escape. Part of the decision was the fact that Woody demanded to go on the boat by himself and the fact that he had taken a briefcase with him that was never recovered. Oh, he's out. Yeah, I mean... He's not going to... Take his life, holding
3: a briefcase, and then he doesn't show up, and the briefcase doesn't show up. Come on, I don't think so either.
2: But why would he do that to his family? What I know. An asshole?
3: Well, maybe he didn't really care that much about his family. Yeah. It was just part of his persona. Which is
1: terrible. I don't know.
3: You know, maybe he was like, "Oh, I'm definitely a family man. Everyone trusts the family man."
1: Yeah. yeah, maybe he spent a long time making that oh, that's appearance. That's awful. Um, Santee also ruled that Sheriff Deputy Ewan's sighting at Bush Garden was believable. Lavin apparently found another man whose license plate was tracked after Ewan made the report. The judge noted that the Florida man had a beard and that Ewan could not have mistaken him for Kelly. That I read that many times sense. and I didn't understand it. Okay, that's But I found a sense. separate article about that sighting and they found that man. His name was Perry Steen. Steen had been hanging out at Bush Gardens that day in 1990, December 1990. Um, This is when Ewan said that he had spotted Kelly at the amusement park. Mm -hmm. Ewan and park security traced Kelly, quote, to the parking lot, but he drove off before police arrived on the scene. A security officer jotted down the license plate number that was traced Mm -hmm. to the truck owned by Steen, a 43-year-old with a passing resemblance to Kelly. So the judge made that ruling before that evidence, before that information been. came to light. It Otherwise, must have been okay because it wasn't included in that. I found it elsewhere. Okay, um, two FBI agents showed up at Steen's Florida home three days after his trip to Bush Gardens, and he, uh, and soon Steen would be in contact with many investigators and lawyers. "Quote: I do not wish to be disturbed about this matter again," Steen said in a deposition presented at the hearing seeking to have Kelly declared dead He's like, I Get resent off the him ac- a
3: dick yeah <laughs> I don't even know who
1: this guy he, is exactly he said I resent the implication that I ever knew Woodruff s Kelly or even care <laughs> wow. so in January 1995 there was one more sighting um, <sighs> that prompted the sheriff to renew the investigation sheriff's Lieutenant Chester Iwan started receiving calls from people claiming that they had seen Kelly on a WLS TV news segment that had aired the night before about changing area codes no. for portable telephones and pagers. No. This is ridiculous. He would never. He's on the lam. He's hiding. I Why know. is he at Bush Gardens and Why on local he, television? He, but like no. multiple people were calling and they were like, it's Woody Kelly. Come on. So Good there Lord. was like, it, the segment was like 30 seconds long. There was a clip of a guy talking on his car phone in it and everyone thought that was Kelly. So Jeez. Iwan, doing his job, calls the news station and asks about the film, but was r- told by the reporter that the film wasn't even new for the story. It was mm. file film they had from May. All he could do at that point was report it to the FBI, and the FBI was like, cool, thanks. So that was the last time anyone ever thought they saw Woody Kelly. Kelly was indicted on multiple counts of mail and tax fraud. He would be 76 years old today, and there is still a warrant out for his arrest.
3: And that's it. We don't know where he is. Wow. Nope.:
2: <laughs> Yeah, there was no update on the... Segment either nope. I I I don't think he killed himself. I don't either. Not with that briefcase. I brief don't know case, if babe. he would kill himself. Maybe he did die. I kind of thought and maybe he maybe. just fell but off. But it
1: is weird that the briefcase brief was case? also not yeah. found. Unless and, it was. And so some heavy. people were like, you know, a, pl- a seaplane came out and took him. I'm like, I wouldn't put it past this guy. I wouldn't either. He no, had lots too, of money. He had two airplanes. He knew pilots. Yes.
2: But totally, then, uh, yeah. It, then that's weird because like. I guess I get it if you know you're probably going to go to jail eventually but you want to protect all your money but how do you go without getting caught? Like yeah. you have this money to spend but you're not going to live your life to the fullest. I mean I guess yeah. it's better I mean, than
3: going to jail. They found John Hawkins on a goddamn yacht.
2: He was living his yeah, best life. Yeah that's he true. He was
3: having a great
0: Okay round two. Name something that's not boring.
3: A laundry? Ooh a book club.
0: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: I never win and tell.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Time, and he never would have come back
0: if he didn't get
1: caught. You're right.
2: Like maybe Woody Callie is out (coughs) what an asshole if that's true. What an asshole. That's terrible. Well, I went back and
1: forth as I went through this because I was like, he really did care about his family so much and like blah blah blah. But that That could have been part of his shtick sucks. Oh. You know? Or maybe he was at that point where he's like, I'm in too deep, they're better off without me. Yeah, but that's bullshit because he left them all hanging.
3: Like he knew, he had to have known that if he just Later, they were going to suffer the consequences. Yeah, he would know their financial situation. Yeah, he's
1: not stupid. Yeah, not just that, but like the embarrassment in their community and And like the loss of your father and And your spouse. Why not just
2: leave them some cash?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like that one guy did. Yeah, totally.
2: Like in the car, he was like, "Check the billfold." Yes. Yeah. Like, do something. That's terrible. And for him to put on the facade for that long, for his son to think, "No, our father would have definitely contacted us." Like he was. Making it
1: believable that he cared about them. Yeah. Yeah, the son was like crying at the trial. Like,
3: That's so sad. I don't know. I go back and forth,
1: but yeah. Wow. Yeah. There was like one weird message board comment that I found from a guy that said he had um, purchased the yacht from Kelly and learned later that um, he had embezzled a bunch of money and went to Egypt, and he knew this because like he brought a girlfriend there with him and dumped her there, and so she came like outed him when she came back and this oh, guy he brought says a girl him. to egypt and left her there yeah oh. and this guy says he was contacted by the, by the fbi scotland yard and interpol well maybe if he did really know a sheikh, he had some connections in egypt yeah man i don't know what a crazy story i think thingies and a lot of stuff
3: wow that's weird that's weird nice work
1: thanks that was fun yeah it was not, not an for an his family, family.
3: they're all the same they yeah. are
2: they're all the same yeah yeah they're very uh charismatic mm-hmm. yeah Everyone loves And it's almost
3: good that they go into fraud instead of, like, cult development because those are the same attributes.
2: Like, think about someone stealing
3: $10,000 from you and you saying that you would give them $10,000 a They are the same person. Yeah. Yeah. charismatic like think about all of the qualifications that we keep seeing about these guys yeah I know. it's brainwash yeah it's like, like cult behavior yeah
1: that's such a good point cult leader behavior for Whoa,
3: sure oh yeah they mm-hmm. have potential so to be, be so much worse yeah they should be grateful that they just lost their money and didn't end up like injected with cyanide wild nice work thanks
2: we'll be right back after this short break okay (laughs) treasure treasure how excited are you Mm, a
1: five i brought my shovel (laughs) good and my metal detector good Good
2: job uh did you bring your noose and your horses and your stagecoach my noose and your pants do you mean noose or do you mean lasso i mean noose oh honey Oh, yes, I do. Okay, so this has a few different names, like so many of the treasures do. Plumbers, treasure, Bannock, treasure. Plumbers? Yes, because that's his name. Oh. Henry Plumbers. Not the occupation, (laughs) baby. Yeah, this is before plumbing, honey bun. (laughs) Okay, so first of all, we open with... A stack in a ghosty town. He's looking like an early Westworld set stack. To Love me. it, right? Ooh. Like the first Westworld generation. Nice. Stack. Um, so he's walking through, sort of telling us about the history of this treasure situation. So since 1864, treasure seekers and fortune hunters have been searching for the treasure of Sheriff Henry Plummer in the hills around Bannock, Montana. So in 1863, gold was discovered in part of the territory known as Alder Gulch. So it's very like the gold was really recently found. Um, Many people started going there, panning for gold. And then as soon as 1864, treasure seekers are looking for some hidden treasure. And we'll find out what happens within this year that suddenly makes people not able to find treasure. Okay, um, so we see the reenactments of men panning for gold. Uh, I think that the props and like writing department had a lot of fun with this because there's a lot of like one liner, like, oh, look at this! It's looking right at me for a big <laughs> nugget of gold." <laughs> um, and the the gold. Have you ever panned for gold or like pretended like on a field trip or something? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, no, wait. Yeah, we did that at, is it Bonneville Dam? Yeah. Yeah, you can do well, it. Well, I haven't. So explain yeah. it, Jersey oh, girl. That was a
1: repressed memory for me. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um,
2: well, also, my husband watches all those like gold mining shows, or some of them. There's gold <laughs> mining shows? Yes. Gold Rush? Honey, I the didn't The worst know show of all what? time. Testosterone filled. Oh, terrible. Wait, wait, wait. People still find gold? <laughs> huh. You don't know about Gold Rush? (laughs) Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, girl. I figured people would have found it all by now. No, there's so much to be found. Gold hunting is so weird because seriously, like on Gold Rush, if I have watched, if I catch like a little section of it. Just admit it's your favorite show. They have, (laughs) I hate it. I hate the guys on it, but they have this giant equipment like, and it's thousands to millions of dollars of like investment to get this gold out. And like, it's super dangerous and all this stuff. And they will then like at the end weigh their gold and it's literally like a little sack that they pull out and weigh it and then are able to like wow. calculate the price of gold for ounce per ounce That for that day. It changes daily. Yeah,
1: crazy. But like.
2: I could never do something like that because I cannot compute that, like, that tiny amount of something would be worth a lot of money. Same with, like, panning for gold. Like, they'll find tiny, tiny nuggets and think, oh, this is great. Flakes. And I'm like, I don't care. Like, it's too small. I don't care. I would throw it away. Or I'm not patient enough to, like, sift through it like that. You're like, she I would rather... a big,
1: big nug. Rather, I need a nug looking right at me. She needs it to be looking her in the eye.
2: You're like, listen, I'd rather
3: slave away at a civil servant job and do a podcast with all my free time for no money than, like, have to figure out how much a flake is worth. Tru-
2: truly. I don't have the patience for it. Can't be
1: bothered with a flake. Can't. Nobody's got time for that. She truly no. cannot.
2: So... Hundreds of prospectors showed up when this is found. We start to see that. But then when word spreads quickly, some crime begins to happen. So there's gangs moving in who are like, I, like me, I would probably be in one of these gangs. I'm like, I <laughs> yes, don't want to do the panning work, but I'm going to kill all of you that are doing it and then just take the gold <laughs> that you got. <laughs> I guess uh, I would be in that
3: gang. Easier. I'm so sorry.
2: <laughs> I love you so much. So- I would be right there with you, honey. <laughs> so, um... The Montana prospectors who were, like, working really hard to find this gold were nearly wiped out by a brazen group of outlaws who called themselves the Road Agent Gang. They were also called the Innocents. Oh, I love that. I know. Oh my God, that's right out of Westworld. I know, it really is. So this is happening, this town, which is like, you know, a small town. Obviously they're all small towns, they're still being like settled and such. Because (laughs) this gold was found, all this crime comes in. So this man, Henry Plummer comes and he's like, I will be the sheriff of Bannock and I will get this um, like lawlessness under control. I loved this segment. Did you? I did. I didn't think it was boring at all. Oh, that's good. It's got like a double cross.
1: It's maybe, amazing. Maybe if yeah. I had paid attention to it, I would have been. <laughs> <in that.
2: laughs> so uh, what people know about Henry Plummer is that he was one of the only men who would tip his hat to the ladies walking down the street. Oh. Um, people Civilized. He,
1: swooning over here. He um, tip that hat, only lived
2: honey. there for like a few months before he was like, I'll be the sheriff. And everyone was like, great.
1: Well, a few months. months. Like, you seem qualified.
2: A few months in that
3: time. It's is like, a lifetime. Yeah, yeah true. Lifetime.
1: You're still alive?
2: Great. Yeah, that, we'll take you.
1: Are you breathing? <laughs>
2: you could be our sheriff, buddy. <laughs> but ironically, and I don't know if the people who elected him knew this, but he had just been released from a brand new California prison, San Quentin, four oh, years earlier. Wow. What, what? Oh, OG San Quentin. Nice. He's also described as very pleasant looking. Ooh. Oh, Timothy Oliphant justified style, you know? <laughs> right, totally. So, pretty soon into the segment, Stack reveals that Henry Plummer is actually the lead of this gang that's killing all the prospectors I love the it so
1: double crossy I okay. love it I
2: definitely just wasn't paying attention at it's so fun <laughs> so one of the reenactments is the man playing Henry Plummer going into like a stagecoach garage or whatever you'd call it and saying there's a coach leaving in two days they have a bunch of gold on and I want all that gold and one of the guys goes so no passengers and Henry Plummer goes no survivors yeah. that's your sheriff baby <laughs> like, the writers were just like, hey, "Yes, honey, give it to me." <laughs> so that's just an example. Like he's trying to, hold, he's saying he's holding the piece or whatever, and then he's actually the one who's ahead of the gang, possibly. Dang. So, finally, in December of 1863, an incident in Bannock put the first crack in Plummer's carefully constructed facade. So, a well-liked young man was cruelly murdered by the right. road agent gang, and they have this in the reenactment, too, someone like finds this body and carries it in on their wagon, and like everyone in the town is really upset about it. It's like a classic, like
3: you pushed it to one step it's too it's far. too far. That happens so frequently,
2: right? Yep. It's like everybody's
3: medium scared, and then you kill the one person that everyone, everyone cares about, yeah. and yeah. that's it.
2: Which is crazy, because tens of people, tens yeah. of, I, I, mean, I don't know how people many people were murdered. People. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but <Tens>. everyone's like, <laughs>
3: <laughs> everyone's like, we don't care about those tens of people. We
2: care about this one young man who, you can't find his name anywhere. He must have been a great guy. So this enrages the residents of Bannack, and several of them formed a posse to search for the killers. And so it's just a posse of vigilantes. Again, it comes down to, everything comes down to Watchmen. Okay?
1: <laughs> <laughs> everything. The only story ever where there were vigilantes. <laughs>
3: I feel like Jamie only listens
1: to this podcast because sometimes so you talk about talk how
3: much about you like
2: <laughs> I mean, it was really great. Did you finish it? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it so much. Okay. <laughs> So just to go into the vigilantes a little bit, this is some stuff that wasn't in um, the segment, but.
1: Was it also like pretty common to have vigilantes back then? Oh, yeah. I feel like that was like
2: normal. They don't have full police departments, so people do have to band together. So it was actually men from Bannock, Virginia City and nearby Nevada City who would meet secretly and they became the Montana vigilantes. Masked men. They couldn't find a cool name, I guess.
3: <laughs> Not like the Innocents. <laughs> no,
2: yeah, but come on. It. But listen, it's literally Watchmen. Masked men began to visit suspected outlaws in the middle of the night, issuing warnings and tacking up posters featuring a skull and crossbones or the mystic numbers three seven seventy seven. Whoa! What? Uh, Talk to me about these mystic numbers. I know. So, and they're masked. They're yeah. wearing masks. Yeah. No, that's terrifying. Vigilantes. I'm with you. <laughs> um, it's totally unnerving. <laughs> so some believe that these numbers are the measurements for a grave. Three feet wide, seven Whoa! feet long, 77 inches deep. And they're just leaving these numbers with a skull and crossbone on these people's house. So it's not totally like... No one has ever said yes. That's what we did the numbers Whoa. for, but it would make sense. Wow. You know, it's crazy. Wow. The Montana State Highway Patrolmen still have 3 7 77 on their shoulder patches. What? And they don't the know police. why? They don't know. I mean, they do it out of respect for the first vigilantes of Montana. Whoa, that just gave
1: me goosebumps. Isn't that
2: crazy. I'm just like, you're wearing. Possibly, it was like a threat that you're yes. wearing on
3: your shoulder. Also, Montana patch. gives no fucks enough that they're like the police <gasps> wow. officers. Full on respect vigilante justice, yeah. which is the one thing that police officers should not
1: Isn't be down that with. Crazy.
2: <laughs> it's crazy.
1: What but I mean, hell? those police officers back then probably would have been those vigilantes.
2: You know, yeah, yeah, because they care enough about, yeah, yeah, that's true. So people who found the numbers 3777 painted on their tent or cabin knew that they had better leave the area or expect to be on the receiving end of vigilantism. I, I am whoa. not mad at that at oh, all. I
1: love, I love, how love it.
2: And then the Montana the Montana Highway Patrol today claimed they do not know the original meaning of the symbol. Um, But, quote, the the Montana Trooper website says, quote, regardless of its meaning, however, 3-7-77 is emblematic of the first organized law enforcement in Montana. The Montana Highway Patrol, in adopting this early symbol, honors the first men in the Montana Territory who organized for the safety and welfare of the people. Yeah. For that same reason, the Association of Montana Troopers has carried on that tradition. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. pretty... Pretty oh. interesting, yeah. Montana's
3: well, one of those big states. you, you know, know they have the bad guys that were gonna die. So,
2: well, but who 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 gets to make that yeah, decision? Yeah, who's deciding yeah. that? Yeah. Who watches and The Watchmen? I mean, you know they're exactly... Oh, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Don't send her into a tailspin. <laughs> well, it's also like, these guys are drinking like crazy. Oh, they're not. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're... Yeah. And that's that's you would have the problem is. Yeah. there's no... Ju- so there is no like trial
3: by jury. There's no justice. It's just people in masks yeah. wasted who
2: decided that someone did something wrong. Something yeah. to affront them even. Even personally.
3: Right.
2: Uh, So the vigilantes are rounding up members of the gang um, and then a road agent was captured and his name was Red Yeager and he was about to be hanged when he dropped a bombshell. He named Henry Plummer as his gang's ringleader. So he's like, don't kill me. Go after your sheriff who's the head of us. And Mm -hmm. from then at that point, no one had heard that Henry Plummer had remained double-crossing people. Um,
3: That was eloquently stated. Isn't it? You're welcome.
2: Isn't it great to have a podcast where I talk? (laughs) He stayed (laughs) double-crossing. He'd be double-crossing. Um. So the vigilante posse immediately went to Plummer's house. Based on Yeager's confession and some other information from the gang, Plummer was sent to the gallows immediately. And interestingly enough, it was gallows that Plummer had ordered built for Whoa. his sheriff duties. I love this story. <laughs> I love every aspect oh of God. this story. <laughs> wow, that's great. That's great, because I wasn't that into it, too, when I was watching it. I was like, yeah. I'm going to make this like 10 seconds, because no one cares about treasure. Yeah, I love everything about yeah. this. Yeah, I don't hate it. And, and the then guy hung, was kind of cute. That
3: played him, too. Oh, yeah, he was a cutie. And hung from the gallows that you had built. Oh, you yeah, you ordered
1: built. It's
2: like Shakespearean. Mm-hmm. Time. So, Plummer was marched to a scaffold he himself built in his role as sheriff, like I said. Before he could be hanged, he made an unusual request. He asked to be given the chance to show... Them where he had hidden the stolen gold. So his gang is, you know, not just taking this gold and then spending it. Possibly they're taking it and hiding it somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Um, So he's like, give me. I think he says something like, give me two hours and a horse, and I'll bring you back all the gold. But they deny his request, and he was hanged. (laughs) I would have heard him out. Well, it's you would. (laughs) But I mean, I get that he they're afraid of him escaping. But if they're really a f- thinking he's the leader of this gang, then they must know he's got gold. So yeah. why wouldn't they be like, "All right, we will. All twenty of us will follow." follow you. That's what I was gonna say.
1: Like, take him out there,
2: and then you can spend the rest of your life in jail or something. Like, we won't even hang you. I don't know. I'd make some sort of yeah. deal with him because he probably doesn't want you following him. Right. But but those vigilantes are just out. Oh, they're for out just. for blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they could have that gold. <laughs> And that would be justice to, like, the families of the yeah. men who found the gold. I don't know. That seemed weird. Oh. Reparations. <laughs> Just all comes back. Red for nations, honey. Yeah, girl. Watchmen. <laughs> don't get me. Just don't be getting me too big with that watchman. <laughs> I can't wait for Jamie to listen to this segment. <laughs> <laughs> the residents were divided on whether or not Plummer was part of the murderous gang. So that's where, like, this gold is found in 1863. Tons of people start finding it. Then they start dying because the gang is killing them. Then a vigilante group is formed. And on January 10th, 1864, plumbers out like. Caught and outed, like it all happens so fast. Yeah. I can't believe and imagine the um, swift and scary change happening
1: in that town. In the town well, I think they were probably towns.
3: like all of those towns were used to that sort of level of insanity all of the time. Yeah. so yeah. I think that was just like Tuesday. Probably, probably I so.
1: Imagine large groups of people in the streets just gasping left and right, like as they <laughs> find out all this information. Mm-hmm. The gossip was running rampant. Yes.
2: Yeah. Sorry. The amount of gold he said, was $100,000 worth of gold. Then. Whoa. I should have done the thing. I'll, I'll do the. You didn't do the I thing? I didn't do the calc. Ah, I live for the calc. Really do it. 100000 in 1864. That's like $65 dollars today. See, that's why I didn't even do the calc. It's too big of a number to read. <laughs>
1: it's $1,638,267. That's a lot of money. So here's the
2: deal, friends. They didn't really talk about this in the segment. They mostly went into, like, the treasure's never been found, blah, blah, blah. Okay. It's still never been found.
1: Okay. Great. It's
2: it's less of a, like, we've had some treasure segments where modern annoying people are, like, giving all their money because they're so rich to look for more treasure to get more rich (laughs) or they're bored or whatever. It doesn't seem to be that big of a treasure hunt anymore. Okay. There's not as much lore around it. There is some like ghosty tales, banak ghosts or whatever. Like there's just some fun lore about it, but less of like people right now are really still searching for the gold, like we've had. There's yeah. no Davy Peaches. Peaches no, is Davy not. Peaches. No, no. But they didn't talk about this in UM. Apparently, after Plummer and several of others of his henchmen were hanged, the robberies did not stop. Oh, Wait a minute. People are still finding the gold, and they're still getting robbed after Plummer's dead. Even though Plummer said, if you let me go,
3: I will bring you to the gold. Uh So he was bluffing?
2: So, why wouldn't he be like, stage, it wasn't me? The stage robberies showed more evidence of organized criminal activity, more robbers involved in the holdups, and more intelligence passed to the actual robbers. Many historians today think that the story of Plummer and his gang was fabricated to cover up the real lawlessness in the Montana Tory, which was the vigilantes themselves. What? Oh my God! <laughs> All the way to the top. It's a triple cross. It's Whoa. a shovel. It's a triple. It's not I plumber. This, I told you this story was good. I told you. It's not plumber in charge of it. It's the vigilante sand. we're going to take control of this. They're the ones who are in it. That Whoa. makes perfect sense. Doesn't that make sense? I fucking love that. <laughs> Allison's never loved a segment more. <laughs> We should make a movie of this. It, isn't, it is Watchmen. <laughs> they just <laughs> did a mini series just did. <laughs> anyway, that's all I have. <laughs> what? That's oh, it. What? That was amazing. <laughs> wow. It's a double. It's a triple. It's a who, know, who knows. Who knows? She's doing full dance moves. Yeah, she is just boogieing. <laughs> <laughs> That was awesome. That was so fun. That was fun.
1: Great. Nice you experience.
3: never
2: know how it's
1: gonna come out. Maybe I should like actually you guys watch this segment. Next
3: you time. guys were so negative about it when we were talking about it on the last episode. For like, oh, next week we're talking about blah blah. Yeah, blah. I should listen. Stop doing I that. saw that desert and those horses, and I was like, snoring. You literally was like, <laughs> you literally down. said that you didn't keep watching it because you were so bored. And I was like, what about the fucking double crap? Like, it is not boring. And then oh and then I didn't it's know a about triple.
1: That yet. Who knows? Who oh, of
3: course, the vigilantes yeah. and that's wow, the And that's vigilantes. some true watchman shit, right there. I know. That's why you can't have vigilante justice, no. and that's why they should remove those oh numbers from my, their badges. Oh my gosh,
1: do we need to get those numbers tattooed on us? I think we do. Oh my I'm god, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm not getting a murder threat tattooed on my body. I will Thanks. not get a grave measurement <laughs> on me.
2: <laughs> Thanks, though. <laughs> anyway, treasure. Goodbye. <laughs> nice work. <laughs>
3: This is actually a really sad... Well, the segment's sad. I hope Yeah. The, I hope the outcome is happy.
1: Yeah. Okay, ready. Um, all right, Lost Loves time. So uh, we start the segment with Lee Ann Robinson, um, who is looking for her half-brother and sister. She hasn't seen them since they were five and seven years old. The only clues that remain are some photos and a small reel of film, which Stack is rubbing his grubbies on in that scene, mm-hmm. so I hope it wasn't lost forever. <laughs> Um, over the old granny film from 1970 of the three siblings on the beach stack explains it's been 19 years since the film was made, but that they hope someone may know who the children are. Um, the film is super cute. They show Timmy who was four in the film and, um, Tammy who was two in the film. They're now 23 and 22. And then they show Leanne at the time of the movie. Um, she was 11 and today she's 32. So stack explains that Leanne hasn't seen her younger siblings since 1972 Um, Leanne is then interviewed and she's just crying. I know. (laughs) And she says she spent a long time looking for them. She can't understand if they're all living in this world, why they should be separated and why they shouldn't be together. Mm. She says she's going to keep searching until she finds them, which is just so sweet. I know. In 1971, Leanne lived with Jimmy and Tammy in Carson, California, a suburb of LA. So this is all over a reenactment of Leanne making food for the kids. Um, and I'm like, okay, where are the parents? Sure enough, Stack says that their mother had cancer. So at 13 years old, Leanne was pretty much like responsible the for the household. Yeah. yeah, Leanne's mom had divorced her dad about seven years prior. Leanne recounts witnessing her mom deteriorate. Uh, her mom says she would tell her she was sorry, but she needed to stay home with Tammy and Jimmy. It's like... Mm-hmm the mom had no choice either you know like yeah it's, it's just a terrible situation um stack says that their neighbor ellen was a constant support ellen's a sweetie um at one point on her deathbed their mother asks uh their mother doris asked ellen if she would take care of her children oh. um which makes me think there was no other family around yeah i guess not um ellen says she told her she would quote because i loved her children Ellen says the kids were easy to love, and they got along great with her kids, so they were like brothers and sisters. So Doris basically just took out like a piece of paper and wrote down that it was her wish that Ellen would take the children, and then she died a few hours later. Oh, Oh, my God. Um, Leanne, Jimmy, and Tammy moved in with Ellen and her children. Leanne says Ellen was only 28 or 29 when they moved in with her. So she's like, I'm 31 now, and I'm like, how did she do it? Yeah. Um, stack says with six kids in the house, it was chaos, but happy chaos. Um, stack says that nevertheless, a social worker decided that Ellen could not provide an adequate home for Leanne, Jimmy and Tammy. Um, and I would really hope that was just based on like financial burden, Like maybe she, this woman hadn't truly thought it out, like how this was going to work long term.
3: I think that's what it was, and I think it was a matter of
1: space. Yeah, because it Mm -hmm. truly seems like they loved them, and she, Ellen, wanted to care for them. It wasn't for lack of
2: support. Provide her with support so that she can keep doing that. Don't take the kids away. They've already had a traumatic experience. Totally, and they're not infants; they're older children.
1: Right. Yeah, and so the added layer of this is that they have. Leanne has a different father than Jimmy and Tammy mm-hmm. so of course the state is like we're going to put you with your father but her father wasn't he wasn't prepared to take in Jimmy and Tammy and I i would imagine again probably financial responsibility wise he was like I can't like, three kids is a lot of kids mm-hmm. totally there's a big difference between one and three that Yeah, would be mm-hmm. a really hard decision so, to make though totally and I, I really would like to believe he didn't just he wasn't just like no I'm not taking them you yeah, know because they're not mine yeah um, the Although, social
3: at the time yeah I and where see. was
1: their dad i know i don't know yeah uh, it would have been
3: nice if they mentioned if he was deceased or
1: yeah so the social workers convinced leanne that this was the best thing for the kids and that they would need a father figure to support them which oh. is an antiquated idea I but she, i mean leanne couldn't take care of them on her own like it's yeah something yeah, she, had to happen she was
3: 13 right
1: yeah So one day when the kids were going to school, Leanne had to say goodbye to them.
3: Oh, I hate this scene. It's so sad. This actress was
1: very good. Yeah, she was Mm -hmm. really good. Yeah. Um, She was convinced it wouldn't be forever and that they'd get reunited again. And I think she truly was like, Mm -hmm. this is really sad, but like, I am going to see you soon. Mm -hmm. So she tells the kids before they go to school that she's going away for a while, but she'll be back and that she loves them. Um, and you can tell in her interviews that Leanne has so much guilt about this, mm-hmm. but it's like, girl, you were 13. Mm-hmm, you yeah. had no control over this situation. Uh, then poor Ellen, the neighbor in her interview, is also just crying, um, saying she loved them so much and it was so hard, but she knew it was best for them. She says uh, the last she saw was their little faces in the back window of the car as it drove She's, away. Oh and she had God.
2: made the promise to the mom, so she exactly. exactly. felt guilt about that. Yeah.
1: Totally. So, and I wonder how stuff like that works today. Like, if someone has in writing that they want a certain person to take care of their kids, like, I is there more? No, I in, think it's supposed to be more legal than that. Like, yeah. I have it in my actual yeah. will. Yeah. And it
2: had to be si- witnessed by two people when I signed it and yeah. stuff. So, so I don't know.
1: for years, Leanne would write letters to Jimmy and Tammy and send them through the adoption agency, but she'd never receive an answer. 13 years later, Leanne had moved back to California, gotten married, and become a successful businesswoman, um, which I later found out she went to school for broadcasting and worked in broadcasting for a few years. Cool. Um, But they didn't really say exactly what she did. In 1987, she finally received a letter with details about the couple who had adopted Jimmy and Tammy. Turns out the family was transferred to New York in 1976, and the adoption agency lost touch. Um, that's terrible. the dark ages yeah and that was another thing I was like I really hope shit like that would never happen now Um, and oh it's I mean it it is all through the cracks oh
2: yeah yeah it is
1: so good they were adopted together yes Yes. at least they were together Um, Leanne goes on to explain how much she misses and wants to see Jimmy and Tammy and how much it felt like she lost her family when she never saw them again she said it's also important to her that they know the truth about how much she loved them and their mom loved them and Ellen loved them. Mm. She says they won't know unless they find them, which is true because they were so little. Yeah, she is carrying so much. Mm. Um, minutes after the broadcast, Tammy, now 22, called the telecenter. Tammy lived in Maine and had two children, and she immediately made contact with Jim, who was in the Army in Monterey, California. On December 10th, four days after the show aired, Jimmy and Tammy flew to California to see Leanne for the first time in 17 years. Yay! So you see them; they're like approaching the house, yes. and Leanne, before they even like set a foot on the driveway, she just runs out and grabs them, and they're just like hugging and kissing, and it's so so mm-hmm. nice. So, and it turns out Leanne was at the call center when Tammy called. Which didn't we have another one where it was like Yeah that? yes. Yeah. So I'm like, they must have always invited people and then what if they didn't call? Oh
2: us? and you're in a room of strangers oh. waiting for your family to call. Yeah. And
3: meanwhile they're getting calls. Yeah. So like but like they have Gosh, to vet it first. Totally. You know what I'm saying? I was just
1: like, wow, they were really banking on it. So she was able to talk to her on the phone, like, that same call. Crazy. Tammy says when Leanne told her who she was, she was too excited to cry. She says she can't even remember what they said to each other, but she knows that the first thing Leanne said was that she loved her. <sighs> um, and then Leanne is just like, I'm just grateful we're so young. We have our whole lives ahead of us, which is, yeah, like, so nice. Like, it's a good perspective to have. Like yeah. we still have all this time together, even though we lost so many years. Yeah. Leanne, Tammy, and Jim's segment aired in early December of 1989. Um, And then I was able to find an article from a Maine newspaper that had interviewed Tammy, because she lived in Maine at the time. Mm -hmm. And it said that in January of 1990, UM did a special anniversary show, which highlighted segments that had happy endings. So um, UM paid for the three siblings to all come back out to L.A. for that show. So they were able to get together again just two months after first finding out where That's each other so was. Nice. Yeah. So then they were able to be together to watch their segment re-air when it reran February seventh, which is really nice. So um, both Tammy and Jim stayed with Leanne because um, she lived outside of L.A. and like Leanne had to like turn her dining room into a bedroom for Jim and too cute. Yeah. Um, Tammy said that she and Leanne had talked on the phone every day since she had come back home after the reunion, which was right before Christmas. Mm. She said, when we got there, we decorated the tree, but we felt like we had already had Christmas.
2: Oh, Oh my gosh. I know.
1: Um, Before heading out to their reunion, Tammy expressed that she was excited to just do family things. She wanted to spend time together and be touristy. um, So she explained that kind of like the first time. They just spent all this time, like, focusing on catching up from the past that they didn't get to just, like, hang out. Yeah, yeah. So she was really excited for this trip that they would just get to, like, be together. That's awesome. Um, I also learned from this article that during the second reunion of the siblings, Tammy and her family would also get to meet Leanne's newly adopted daughter, Stacy, who was just six months old. Oh. They didn't talk about that in the first. So she adopted as well? Yeah, which I think is (laughs) so so nice. nice. Out of the three siblings, I was able to find the most about Leanne. Um, Leanne went to school for broadcasting, worked in the field for a few years before changing careers and working in personal, at a personal development company, which I just think of Nexium when I think of that kind of stuff. Or like like a life coach or something? Yeah, I don't know. Um, so. (laughs) She's the head of fucking Nexium. I'm like, ah. (laughs) Uh, She's tattooed. She. Branded. Branded. She might still work for the company. She also was a director at Mary Kay in 1986. She founded a camp for teens called Camp Inspiration about 12 That's years nice. ago and she's hosts a, a hustler, fundraiser. Honey. Oh my yeah, gosh. She hosts a fund- fundraiser for the camp every year. Um, and she's also worked for like selling a skincare line for a few years. Leanne is currently 62 years old, living back in the LA area. Um, I found her on Facebook. She's super cute. I was gonna say she's super cute. She's super cute. She looks like she lives a very happy life. She travels a lot. She has a lot of friends and family around her. She's often wearing like fabulous hats and like fancy heels. Love it. Um, she's in the Rotary Club. She's been married to her husband Maurice since before the show aired thirty two years wow. ago. Um, I found Tammy, who now goes by Tamara or Tamara. I'm not sure. Um, she's living in Ohio, and as we know, she has a husband, Paul, two kids, Caitlin and Spencer, who are 32 and 31. Can't find anything on James. Um, he was in the army in California, but I'm not sure where mm-hmm. he is now. So
2: nice. Yeah. That was a nice one. Yeah, yeah. So bad for happy them.
1: ending. Totally
2: nice work, girl.
3: All right, sharesy feelsies. I'll go first. Okay. So I started a new podcast, and Yay. it's called—I know, right? Weird. Thank you. <laughs> it's called True Crime Snack Time. Um, it's just me, and it's a daily podcast about like uh, this day in true crime history. But because I've started this podcast, it has shifted my relationship with resolved mysteries back to a place that I was when we first started this podcast before it became all like intense and. Markety and businessy, and all mm-hmm. of the things that come along with having a podcast. So, like, I'm having a really good time participating in this. Po- I always have had a good time, but I'm back to where I was when we initially started it, where like I just get really high and watch segments.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> that Which is, is
1: the dawn of this podcast.
3: Yeah, the dawn <laughs> of this podcast was me getting high and watching segments, and then like (laughs) drunkenly telling Carlin and Eliza later about the segment. (laughs) Um, So I'm back to that place. And it's really, really fun to like let everything else kind of go that comes with the responsibility of like producing the podcast Mm -hmm. and just have the joy of watching these really crazy stories and these ridiculous reenactments and just like fully leaning in and being like, all right, let's see where this goes. You know, like, so it's really nice that I enjoy doing the new podcast that I'm doing, but shifted me back to a really great yeah. place with this, and it's a lot of fun. They're
1: very different animals. Yes, totally. If you haven't checked it out yet, you should.
2: You should. She's doing such a great job. We're Go so subscribe. proud. Subscribe. Oh my god, thank you. Great right, review. Subscribe. Do it. <laughs> True crime snack time. You don't have to listen to me or Carlin. <laughs>
1: Um, I've been listening to... Well, okay. I had been listening to this thinking (laughs) nobody else is listening to this. Um, And then fucking Georgia and Karen from My Favorite Murder guest on the episode. In bed with Nick and Megan. Yeah. It's Megan Mullally and uh, Nick Nick Offerman's podcast. They're married, as we know. They literally just have celebrities come sit in their bed with them. Um, Georgia and Karen were just on it. I was lit. I let it autoplay to the next one, and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" Now everybody knows <laughs> <laughs> they recorded it way like when their book was out. I don't know why it's yeah. just now getting released. I think they oh. recorded a lot of episodes before they finally got it up and running. Yeah. Um, oh. Okay. But I really love them. Like. My husband and I saw them on tour together a couple years ago. They did a tour called The Summer of 69, No Apostrophe. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was about kind of like their love life and stuff. Have you read their book, The Greatest Love Story of All Time? No. I haven't I would either. Like I want to. I love them. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the episodes are kind of like... Hit or miss based on if you are interested in the person that's the guest. Yeah. Um, Because there's a couple that are a little slow, but um, some of them are really interesting. They just kind of talk about like their background in the industry, which is really cool and is interesting to me. So, yeah. And now if you like MFM, they also guested on the latest episode.
2: It's fun. Cool. I I listened to it too. I haven't heard it yet,
1: so I want to check it out.
2: Um, and they're doing my dream, recording in bed. I don't mm-hmm. know how they do it. Even
1: though, like, Georgia and Karen were like, it was very uncomfortable. And I was like, yeah, girl, I
2: know. Yeah, <laughs> but especially with, like, people you don't know that well. Like, well, if it was the three Most of, us, of the people they've had over, they are friends with. Friends with.
3: with.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, mine is Quick. I saw Little Women, and I love it so much. It's the best. You should Cute. watch it. It's oh, Greta good. Gerwig? Yeah. yeah. She directed Lady Bird. She does a wonderful job with it. I know there's been a few tries at making the movie, and it's a great story. But <clears throat> it's like eye candy the whole time. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever looked at. <laughs> Everything's great. The casting's wonderful. So you should watch it. You should watch it while it's in theaters, too. Uh, oh, what are we talking
3: about next episode?
2: We got another fraud, looks um, like.
3: So, yeah, I have a fraud segment. And it's Ed Barbera,
2: I believe is his last name. I have The Unexplained Death of Rayanne Mosser. And I have a Last Loves, the Georgia Tan Tennessee Children's Home Society.
3: And then I have a Wanted segment, and it's Donald Eugene Webb.
1: I just listened to somebody's episode about Georgia Tam.
2: That I
3: gave that TV. Oh, I, I know what it was. It was on Criminal. Very,
1: really,
2: mm. Oh, great. I'll have to listen to it. Oh, yes. I listened to that one. Yes, I didn't know about this. Story. Oh, see, so I, I gave it to you because sure I assumed that you knew about no. it. No. Oh. oh, yeah, it's a crazy story. It's crazy.
3: It's, yeah. it's really
2: good. Um. Okay. So. Okay. I'm going to go upstairs. Sorry. Okay. Eliza's leaving, so I'll just you do can the do outro. Do it without one. me. Just do it. You have to say goodbye. Goodbye. Love you. Thank you. Gonna go
1: get burritos. They're gotta gonna go, do the rest. Bye. Gotta go get those burritos. Just Keep it going. Okay. Bye. <laughs> All right. Well, stop knocking around.
2: Okay. Hold
1: on. She knocks
3: down the entire podcast room before she leaves. <laughs> Fucking bull in a podcast room. Okay. Thanks. It's the first time I've done the outro, and she literally gets up and leaves. <laughs> Go to patreon.com slash Resolve Mysteries Podcast if you're interested in supporting us there. If you subscribe at the $5 month level or higher, you'll get two extra episodes a month and a shout out on our show. Uh, to see photos we reference in the episode, follow us on Instagram at re underscore solve mysteries on Facebook and Twitter at resolve the pod. And you can contact us at resolve mysteries or at our P.O. Box 14005 Portland, Oregon 97293. Um, do you want me to do it? Yeah, go ahead. Please. Eliza's not here. We could do what
1: we want. We just go rogue when she leaves. <laughs> um, we're alternating the paragraphs. OK, so send us your stories for listener short stack episodes. We keep collecting fun things from you guys. We need more to keep making them. Yeah. Um, send us really anything you find interesting. UM nostalgia, favorite cases, anything. Um, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like us, leave a five-star review and tell a friend. OK, Thanks, guys. We love you so. Sushi burrito time. Bye. Bye. Now I'm going to try to tap it out to you guys sometimes and see if you pick up on it. So what is
2: the line? How do you do a line? It's like,
1: boop.
2: You wait. Instead of like, boop, boop. Okay. Yeah. So we can't really tap. Well, if you tap it out. (laughs) Well,
3: I think if you tap it out, because they do do that, but like you pause longer. So it's like, it would be like,
2: oh, And we just all called you honey in Morse code. You're welcome. <laughs> honey, honey. <laughs> what Thank if we you, just baby. did the whole podcast in Morse code? Oh, God.
1: <laughs> like, I feel like there's two people who get really excited about that. Uh-huh. And everyone else And that's it. it. All
2: right. Well, I love you both. I'm sorry it was late. Oh, oh it's gosh, fine. I love it. I love it.
4: <laughs> Yay. Cute. Cute.